everyone. I'm Meredith Wesley, a Senior Analyst in the Apt Associates Division of Health and Environment. And I'm joined today by my colleague and friend, Laura Edwards. Laura? Hi, my name is Laura Edwards and I'm an Associate at Apt Associates. And today we're going to be talking about the CDC-funded RECOVER study. RECOVER stands for Research on the Epidemiology of SARS-CoV-2 in Essential Response Personnel. And I am the study lead for this study. I've been in this role for a little over a year now. And Meredith also has been on the study since day one as the data lead for APT. Yeah, so RECOVER is a network study that we have six partners across the U.S. in six different geographic locations. And the study is, was originally intended to look at the incidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection among highly exposed populations, more specifically first responders and healthcare personnel. So first responders being folks in the fire service, police departments, EMS, et cetera, and then healthcare providers being any individual who provides hands-on medical care um, in, in a healthcare setting. Yeah, so we started designing this study in collaboration with CDC in May of 2020 and began recruitment and enrollment of study participants at our six study sites at the end of summer 2020. And right now this is anticipated to be um, a study that goes until spring of 2022. So that makes it a cohort study um, with a longitudinal design. And we originally started with a target sample size of 2,000 healthcare workers and first responders. Um, but over time, that sample size has grown and our targets have um, grown along with it. So like Meredith mentioned, this study started off as an incident study, trying to understand the rates of both symptomatic and asymptomatic infection with SARS-CoV-2 in healthcare workers and first responders. So as Laura mentioned, RECOVER is a prospective cohort study, which means that once a participant is enrolled, we follow them over time. So since recruitment started in August of 2020, participant may have enrolled um, in August of last year and maybe follow it, followed all the way through the end of data collection at the beginning of 2022. So participants are first recruited and of course consented to the study and enroll. And there are a series of questionnaires that the participants take every several months, starting with an enrollment survey where we collect information on demographics and occupation information and some different information on um, exposures, things like PPE use and a few other factors directly related to the exposures they might have in the workplace and the way that those exposures might change over time. So aside from the surveys, we also collect blood specimens on participants at several time points during the study, of course, to look at, um, you know, different immune markers and antibody responses at different points across time. And then perhaps most importantly, for a study of incidents, we have a pretty robust text message-based illness surveillance platform. And so as a part of that illness surveillance, we collect information each week on whether or not every participant is experiencing a set of COVID-like illness symptoms. So we have a study case definition that includes eight COVID-like symptoms. And we also ask participants to self-collect a nasal specimen and ship it off once per week to our partner laboratory in Marshfield, Wisconsin, where the lab conducts PCR tests for SARS-CoV-2 on all of those samples. So participants are getting pretty real-time weekly 
tests for COVID during uh, the duration of the study. And we use that data specifically in order to map out the number of new incident cases over the amount of time that participants are followed in the cohort. Which is that our study is fairly unique in that, like Meredith said, we are asking each of our participants to self-collect and ship a nasal swab for testing every single week. And so they're doing that on a pre-assigned day of the week. So if you're a Monday person, that means every single Monday for up to a year and a half, you're collecting this nasal swab and sending it in. And that's regardless of how you feel. If you feel ill, you collect that on Monday, or if you feel perfectly fine, you also collect it on Monday. And then if you feel ill at another time during the week, so any other day but Monday in this example, you can also collect that nasal specimen and send it in. And so we're able to test every single participant in this network every single week. And that helps us determine who has symptomatic COVID infection, but also those participants who never show symptoms or maybe test positive for SARS-CoV-2 before their symptoms even appear. And that's a pretty unique feature of this network. It's complicated and expensive to do, but provides really valuable information in terms of incidence or rates of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so because we had this platform with the weekly specimen collection going for several months, by the time the vaccines were starting to roll out at the end of 2020, CDC approached us and asked if we asked if we could sort of transition our platform from studying just the incidence of SARS-CoV-2 to also studying the effectiveness of the vaccines. So there's a, di a difference between vaccine efficacy and vaccine effectiveness. And vaccine efficacy is the data that came out in early November for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that was the results of the clinical trials that took place mainly over the summer and into the early fall of 2020. And vaccine efficacy looks at how potent or effective these vaccines are under very controlled clinical trial settings. So that means that the cold chain was guaranteed for all of these vaccines that have to be kept at very specific temperatures. The, the trials could guarantee that that was kept intact. And also that because these two vaccines in particular have a two-dose schedule under the clinical trial settings, the participants did get their dose one and dose two perfectly timed apart. But we know that that doesn't always happen in the real world. And so vaccine effectiveness looks at how helpful these vaccines are at preventing SARS-CoV-2 infection under real-world conditions. Um, and so our platform was one of the best cohort studies to study this because we already were collecting specimens every week on our 2,000 participants. Yeah, so I did want to revisit a point that we had started talking about at the, the beginning of our, our chat was just about the initial population that we set out to recruit and enroll uh, into the study, which, as I mentioned, was healthcare providers and first responders. And so uh, anyone who's been following along with the vaccine rollout um, here over the last couple of months will probably notice something very specific about those two categories of workers, which is that they were both toward the top of the list of prioritization for receiving the vaccine once it did become available. 
um, as decided or recommended by the ACIP and then and then recommended, you know, ultimately by CDC. So this created a bit of an issue um, when we did make the transition to wanting to, to studying VE vaccine effectiveness because these groups were expected to get the vaccine very early. So once we kind of transitioned our protocol and kind of poised ourselves to be able to answer this question about vaccine effectiveness, we did have to consider changing our target population for the study in order to include a new group that would be a bit lower on that list of priority recipients for the vaccine. Um, and that's because, as Laura uh, began talking about, in order to study vaccine effectiveness, you need to have something to compare the vaccinated participants to. So you need essentially a, an unvaccinated control group in order to say, this group got vaccinated. This is the number of infections that we observed during the period. And that is compared to the number of, of infections that we observed in this unvaccinated population followed during the same period. And so in order to add that component into the study, we pivoted in um, late fall of last year to include a third occupational category in into the study design. And those are um, essential frontline workers. Yeah, so essential frontline workers are basically anyone whose job is critical to the functioning of the economy, but can't do their job from home. So it's people who, by the nature of their job, are exposed to SARS-CoV-2 because they are out in the world they can't do their work remotely. And so that could be anything grocery store workers to postal office workers, custodians and janitors and teachers who are doing in-person as opposed to remote learning. So it is a pretty broad category. And at the point in November, 2020, when we decided to expand our study and include this third occupational category, we upped our sample size from 2,000 participants to almost 3,500 participants. Yeah, so uh, when this idea was first proposed to the network, uh, we had quite an extensive number of conversations about kind of the best way to collect this uh, vaccination data since there is not currently a federal uh, level registry that tracks vaccination information, even for COVID, though. Um, I think there have been some ideas thrown around that perhaps, um, you know, especially after this last year, there would be interest and utility in having a federal level vaccination um, registry. There, there currently is not one. The states have kind of varying degrees of implementation in terms of vaccine registries, both before the, um, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and then there has been, I think, kind of like a revived interest in, in building some of those platforms out. But at the time that we were looking to start collecting this information, which was immediately in um, you know, mid-December, as soon as the first vaccines went into arms across the country, we didn't have a one-stop shop where we could go and, and abstract this vaccination information. And so we ended up taking a bit of a, a hybrid approach across the six study sites. Um, so we at APT created several different avenues for sites to collect and provide this information back into our study databases. So some of our study sites were specifically selected as sites because they have access to uh, EMR data on many of the participants in the cohort. So these are people who you know, obviously consent to have uh, the study abstract inf certain information from their medical record. And in some cases, the vaccination information would be readily available there. So uh, an abstraction exercise would kind of give, get us what we need in a very timely manner. For sites that didn't have that option or for participants who might not you know, have provided access to their medical record to the study. 
Uh, we did have a few sites who were able to access occupational health records, again, with, of course, the consent of the participant, um, but had, you know, especially for healthcare providers, kind of workplace level and vaccination campaigns going on. And so information would be available in those HR records. And then for sites who might not have had access to either of those options, we did provide a survey that went out um, via text message as well to uh, all of the participants for the opportunity to self-report their vaccination status to us. And if at the time they received the survey, they hadn't you know, hadn't yet gotten the vaccine or reported that they weren't intending to get the vaccine. We used that information to drive the timing of the next iteration of that survey that they would receive. So we were, um, you know, every eight weeks or so checking in with people to see, because of course this is a big decision for a lot of people. And perhaps in December, someone might not have been ready to take the vaccine. But then when we, um, you know, check in again come February, um, maybe they've changed their mind or maybe, you know, they, they've gotten the first dose um, by that point. So we did have the self-report option available. And as part of that, um, you know, I think very widely known at this point that uh, once you get the COVID vaccine, CDC had provided these vac vaccination cards, basically like an individual record that would was particularly useful for timing um, for tracking the timing of your first dose and your second dose. It also had some information about lot number and the location that you received the vaccine, et cetera. And so um, as kind of a, a double check or um, kind of a, a um, corroboration, I guess, of these self-reported vaccination statuses, we did um, ask participants if they had kept a copy of, um, of that vaccine card. Uh, we gave them the opportunity to um, provide a copy to the studies. And each state has a slightly different um, registry and different timeliness of uploading and completing the data within their registry. And as you can imagine, when these vaccines first started rolling out in December, there were some kinks to work out in those processes. So it wasn't the most reliable data, especially during those early few weeks of rollout. Um, it's significantly improved and the process is a lot more streamlined and reliable now. Um, and so we're able to also go back and verify vaccination within those state level immunization registries. Yeah, and part of our um, work here at APT was, um, you know, to be receiving this information, the input from each of the sites, and then, you know, before delivering an analytic, you know, data set or the, the product really to CDC, you know, it was our responsibility to go through and um, have, you know, double checks to confirm this person, you know, to confirm dates of vaccination, confirm um, products that participants received. Uh, we were uh, collecting manufacturer level information on different products um, and then to go through and kind of make sense of these different sources and um, resolve any discrepancies, of course, with the um, very close help of all of our site partners. Um, and then ultimately um, to put that information into, you know, a final data set that was ready for these uh, vaccine effectiveness analyses that were conducted um, by the CDC. So it was fast and furious effort <laughs> over the winter. And uh, it was a really exciting time, I think, for our team to be kind of involved from day one of vaccine rollout. Yeah, it was definitely a fast and furious process for our team um, to collect and verify that data in mid and late December and throughout the month of January um, as we were figuring out all of our processes, which are quite streamlined now. But as we're trying to figure all of that out, as a reminder, our participants are still going through their weekly swabbing um, every single week, regardless of whether or not they got the vaccine. <clears throat> and so part of how you calculate vaccine effectiveness 
is to look at breakthrough infections or people who have been vaccinated for SARS-CoV-2 and yet still have a positive nasal swab, still do get a positive test result indicating that they're infected. And so it's super, super important, as you can imagine, in doing these calculations to make sure that, you know, if you say, oh, this person is positive and they were vaccinated recently, that you have incredibly accurate and trustworthy information about exactly what date they were vaccinated and which product they received, because all of this feeds into those VE calculations. Yeah, so we're excited to share that the um, preliminary vaccine effectiveness results were published um, in an MMWR that was released um, in the first week of April 2021. Part of that analysis, our results from the Recover um, Network were combined with a similar cohort study out of the University of Arizona in order to have adequate sample size for that analysis. And so um, we're super excited to be a part of that, that conversation about the COVID-19 vaccines and continue uh, to look forward to a uh, more complete and final vaccine effectiveness analysis that's expected from the study early this summer.